I don't know whether they keep ratings for these sorts of things, but uh, I imagine that the ratings for the Trump trial would be up there with the debates with Biden. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, October 20th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to talk about a storyline that could make the trials of Donald Trump even more of a spectacle than they already are. Will judges allow cameras in the courtroom, allowing millions of Americans to watch the Trump trials in what would absolutely be a ratings bonanza for the cable news networks? Eric explains. And later, Abby Livingston swings by with an update on the speaker's race drama. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Friday, everybody. I hope you're getting ready for a nice, crisp fall weekend wherever you are. It's the best time of the year, in my opinion. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to talk about Donald Trump's legal challenges. There are so many threads to pull when it comes to that sentence. But the one I want to talk to Eric about this week is the idea that there might be cameras in the courtroom for one of these four trials, at least. Eric, among the four big cases and the over 90 criminal charges. But the four big cases, Georgia, state, New York, civil, and then the two federal cases, Trump mishandling classified documents and obstructing justice, and then his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Will any of these have cameras in the courtroom? Uh, It's possible. If I had to guess, I would guess that the, the Georgia one very well might and now there's a possibility that the one in D.C. could. NBC made a, an application a few days ago, and a press group has made an application as well, and they have some pretty interesting, good arguments for it, but it would definitely be a departure for how federal courts customarily mm-hmm. work, and this goes back you know, six, seven decades. But that being said, there's a really good argument that this is a pretty crucial moment in American history, and that there's a lot of people who, you know, want to see it and kind of verify that justice is being administered here. Uh, So there's a good argument for it. My prediction is that the judge is going to allow both the Justice Department and Trump to brief her on whether they oppose it. And honestly, I'm not sure exactly what the sides uh, are going to argue, whether they'll be for it against it. So it's, it's hard to make a prediction here. Yeah, it's, it's funny, like you could see both sides of the argument. One, what you just said, this is a historic moment. People deserve to see this. But two, you can see Trump also being like, we want people to see this too. Like we want people to see this as a sham and Trump loves a camera as well. But just backing up for a second, I know that the rules are different 
from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction in terms of whether cameras are or are not allowed. What's the original like reasoning legally or, or from judicial corners as to why having cameras in the courtroom is valuable? So, so this goes all the way back to the 1930s. You know, television was first uh, coming up. And one of the first big trials to be televised was the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh's baby. Mm-hmm. And after that, that trial where, where the guy was convicted, he made an appeal basically saying that his due process was violated by the fact that there were cameras there, that, would, that there was such a frenzy there. And the appeals court rejected him on there. But there was another case that came along a couple decades later in Texas where another defendant made a similar argument. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court actually overturned the conviction, saying that there was a a due process violation. Another couple decades went by and state courts, which run on a different system, would make their own rules. And one was in Florida. And that also went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that it's okay if states decide to depart from that. And I think that there are about 46 states these days that allow cameras in the courtroom. Mm. You know, even though theoretically they allow cameras in the courtroom, the fact is that judges are given a lot of discretion in these states, and a lot don't. But some do, especially, and this is kind of interesting, especially in jurisdictions where the judges get elected when they're on the ballot. In such cases, they like to be in front of the public, show the public what they're doing. And Florida is one you know, particular hot zone of cameras in the courtroom. So that's you know basically the system. Over the years, it's kind of changed at the margins. A few years ago during the COVID pandemic, for instance, uh, when the courts wanted to discourage people from going into the courtroom, they kind of loosened the rules a little bit and allowed some video and you know especially audio from from these hearings while the appeals courts have their own different rules it's a mm-hmm. you know it's kind of an interesting kind of cornucopia of, of things we did see in some of trump's arraignments cameras where trump was on camera uh we saw this in in the uh civil case in new york at least where trump was sort of sitting there scowling we saw that funny clip of like the judge in the case, like looking at the camera and smiling, which was actually kind of a little weird. Like you want your judges to be as dispassionate as possible. But that was an arraignment or like the opening proceedings of, of a case. Like, is there a world where cameras would be allowed in one part of the proceedings, but not like the trial itself in any of these places? You know, I think that the more interesting possibility is the fact that a judge might allow cameras in, but not live broadcasts. So maybe mm-hmm. with a few hours of delay, especially in certain circumstances when there's maybe classified information, there definitely won't be cameras there. But it all really depends on context. I also think that, uh, especially in the Trump situation, the fact that there are cameras in the courtroom really has the potential to kind of influence the proceedings. You know, whether or not Donald Trump testifies, for, for instance, I could see the fact that there is cameras in the courtroom being the influencing factor that basically puts him on the witness stand. So I think there's a really, really huge decision and one of the more underrated ones in terms of what's, you know, might actually impact the next election. I don't know whether they keep ratings for these sorts of things, but uh, I imagine that the ratings for the Trump trial would be up there with the debates with Biden. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was thinking the other day when the conflict in 
Israel and Gaza touched off that cable news was sort of forged in war coverage um, back during the first Gulf War. But, you know, cable news really found its footing in covering trials. Uh, headline news for a very long time was basically just true crime and live coverage of trials and, you know, missing blonde women and missing children, etc. So, yeah, I can't imagine that this wouldn't be a ratings bonanza. The last thing I want to ask you, uh, especially on the topic of influencing trials, is about this gag order that Judge Tanya Chutkin put in place in the federal trial of Trump trying to overturn the 2020 election. Basically, she did so at the request of special prosecutor Jack Smith. Trump has obviously and repeatedly attacked him as deranged, and she put in place this gag order to stop Trump from influencing a juror pool, from harassing (laughs) staff involved in the courts or any of the witnesses. My question for you is, I get where she's coming from on the gag order. She did, I think, a pretty good job of threading the needle between the gag order and limiting it to the trial itself while not impinging on Trump's First Amendment free speech rights. What are the penalties, though, for violating the gag order? Because it just feels inevitable that Trump will (laughs) violate the gag order. And from my understanding, it's like there can be some financial penalties. He can be held in contempt. But that also feels like chump change for somebody like Donald Trump. Like no one's going to show up and like arrest him if you post something on True Social about Jack Smith again. Or are they? Yeah, that's the really vague thing. And the reason why I think these judges are being very, very careful about the orders that they give in this case, because you don't want to make some sort of gag order and then have it violated and then show that you're kind of a toothless judge. Mm -hmm. So I think that Judge Chutkin kind of was influenced by what happened in New York, where, yeah, in that civil trial over financial fraud, Trump went on Truth Social and started bad-mouthing the clerks of the court, saying that they were Chuck Schumer's girlfriend and, and all that. And the judge said, basically, cut it out. As for penalties, uh, you know, yeah, it'll start with big financial fines. You might uh, extend not just to Trump himself, but to, uh, mm-hmm. to his lawyers to try to, like, get them to keep him in line. Not that any Trump lawyer has ever, you know, been successful in, in keeping their client in line. But, you know, yeah, who knows? Maybe it could uh, move on to at least like a night in the holding cell or something. That would be quite interesting. But I think that what these judges are trying to do is to do something in a very, very limited fashion to kind of tiptoe. I think Trump's getting a lot very favorable treatment. And, you know, to the extent that the gag orders are there, they're just, you know, say, you know, stop talking about people involved in this case. You can still talk about the case itself, but don't put anyone's life in danger. That crosses a line. And the consequences, I guess we're just going to have to see when, when that happens. Eric, thank you so much for your analysis as always. My pleasure. When we come back, Abby Livingston is here to talk about the chaos in the house. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. 
Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are are pancakes i love pancakes more than waffles more than french toast a couple of my favorites so far the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites i love egg bites discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast midday bites and more no prep no mess meals factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed so sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Abby Livingston. We're actually on the pod here for a second time today with an update on the absolute mess of the House speaker vote. We recorded this earlier Thursday afternoon. And now after a couple big twists and turns, we are back. Abby, it seemed like Jim Jordan was going to put his speakership bid on hold after losing a second vote. And Republicans were going to come together, maybe with Democrats even, to empower Patrick McHenry, who was in this sort of speaker pro tem trustee caretaker role, uh, to hold on to the speakership through the end of the year. And then what happened? It just it seems like it just totally fell apart in the last couple hours. Yeah. And I think it's there's two points here. The one is the immediate that House Republicans all got into a room and had a meeting. And it was another one of these where reports emerged of yelling and screaming and an airing of grievances. And so, you know, this seemed to be the plan. It seemed to be this was the Again, the train was leaving the station and, you know, most of the senior ranking Republicans came out of the meeting saying they were against it, which I mean, you just don't see an idea floated. And then as soon as a meeting is over, usually leadership goes into a meeting having a pretty good sense of where their members are and then persuades them to come along. And the exact opposite happened. The other point is this is basically where we are. And this is where we've been for two weeks, where there every day begins with a plan that you could basically start an office pool of picking a time in the day of when they will go off the rails. And so you have each day ending with more chaos for the Republican Party and more division. This is a pretty shambolic conference right now. Right. So Jordan had failed the second vote. He is now sort of as we speak, they are planning on a third vote. I don't know if that is going to happen later today. I presume, and I'll ask you to predict, Abby, that that third vote is also going to fail, right? I think it's not just going to fail. I think most people either have the reporting or the gut or the common sense to detect it's probably going to be a worse tally for him. He was running a fearful, fear-inducing whip campaign that included a lot of conservative media. And it seems like people are standing up to him one by one. People are finding new courage to stand up against the, the right wing of the party. 
Abby, talk to me about the the psychology of this group of Republican hardliners who rejected the McHenry plan, because it seemed like sort of a good face-saving off-ramp for Jordan. I think the psychology is, I think it's really hard for people outside of Washington to understand just how deeply divided members of Congress are by party. This is cultural. There are restaurants that only Republicans and Democrats go to. They don't even know each other's gossip. As a reporter, I can say that. So they are really divided. They they talk in committees. They form these sort of friendships where they can build a uh, in a committee where they pass a law. But these are not really friendships the way we think of them. And so I think the idea of voting together with Democrats was just flat unfathomable to so many of these Republican members of Congress. I think it's I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Fair enough. Obviously, this would have had some advantages for them if they could have seen past that. I mean, one of the theories that was going around was that McHenry could be this sort of heat shield who could potentially take and absorb some of the hits on unpopular votes and other House business that just needs to get done over the next couple of weeks, that he could do that, kind of get it out of the way, and then let Jordan come in with, with clean hands and take over from him. And now it seems like they, they've backed away from that scenario, although God knows, like, he could come back in. We'll, we'll see if there's another candidate who arises here. I mean, it's not just that. Like, it does not serve the House GOP to have this continue on. And maybe it was a little West Wingy for this theory or this idea to go forward. But they're missing months of fundraising. I mean, how as a member of Congress... And I, I will be clear, House Republicans have been pretty good at raising money for their campaigns. But if if you're dealing with this kind of chaos, how do you make calls to donors and ask for money? They're losing major amounts of time. And the Democrats don't have that burden because they don't think that they're in the wrong here. And neither do their followers. And so uh, at least in the donor class. So every single day that goes on, severe damage to the Republican Party is happening. And they seem to continue to march in that direction. Is there any sort of cynical, positive spin that Republicans have been able to put on this? I mean, I've seen the handful of people who have gone on Fox or CNN and they've said, well, this is something Democrats did to us. They defenestrated McCarthy and put us in this jam. But I have to imagine that that message is not going over well with many people, that the public can mostly see through that. But I'm curious your view on the Republican messaging here, if there's any way that they're able to spin this to look not quite as bad as it really is. I think they can make the case to their followers that it's a Democrat's fault. And I think that that has gone through. I have not heard of or seen polling. I am very curious in some of these states with midterm elections, if the national politics are breaking through, there's a very good chance the average American is not paying attention to this, even though they should be. Additionally, just look at how the Democrats are appearing. Now, they have their own division right now over Israel and Palestine that is continuing to fester. But with the actual speakers fight, Democrats are marching together. They are all in the same space. They are all horrified watching this. I hear this firsthand. I mean, they have broken out on shears in the um, the House floor and a little bit of taunting, but they're, they're pretty serious. And then you look over at the Republicans and whether or not this is tied to it. George Santos was running down the hall, yelling obscenities through one of the hallways. He was carrying a baby and no one understood what was going on. So I think if you're doing sort of a simulcast of the two parties, the visual is much more powerful right now than I think the argument. 
Yeah, the, the, the visuals on the Republican side are obviously terrible. There is so much chaos that is hard to spin or explain. Um, and, and it's really like put all of us in the in the media in a tight spot, too. I feel like just there's nobody who has an, a good answer here. Just as we were talking, I was looking at the Politico live blog and they had this little tab that was, where do we go from here? Four possible scenarios for how this House Speaker mess works itself out. I clicked on that. Curious what the answers are. The the four possible scenarios, I'm just going to read them to you. One of them is that Jordan takes a third vote and drops out, which of course leaves us nowhere. Another option is that McHenry is empowered. The author then goes on to note that that doesn't seem like it's going to happen either. Another option, Jordan wins. This feels like the least likely at this point, the author says. I think you and I both agree. And the final and fourth possible scenario is just titled The Great Unknown. At this point, it seems unlikely that House Republicans are able to pass a resolution empowering McHenry, even as the speaker impasse seems intractable. This is this is a long way of saying that this author doesn't know what's going to happen next. And I don't blame him. I don't know. I don't think anyone on the Hill or in the media has a sense of where we're going to be 24 hours from now. But um, Abby, I'll give you the last word. Do you do you want to toss out a prediction or does this just feel like we're in uncharted territory? My my predictions over the last few weeks have evaporated within 30 minutes. But I also just think that's extraordinary to point out. Capitol Hill is, you know, these members of Congress, their schedules are planned out months in advance. They have certain flights they take. I think there's even flights scheduled in Washington just to accommodate members of Congress. And so the fact that there is this much chaos and uncertainty is such an aberration for the way Washington works. And so it's just one more symptom of just how out of control all of this feels. And we'll see if there are consequences. We've got the 2024 November elections a little bit more than a year from now. You know, the, the, the predictions have been that Democrats are possibly a little more likely to retake the House. I have to imagine that with every passing day, the odds that Republicans retain their majority or grow it is just disappearing constantly. And I, I will just say, just in observing uh, Jim Jordan before the cameras today, he he just didn't have a swagger for the first time I'd ever seen him. And I do think Democrats' swagger is increasing. And those are things that are intangibles that sort of can tell you which way the winds are blowing. Totally. Countdown to uh, Speaker Jeffries. Abby, thanks very much. Again, we're, we're re-recording this podcast Thursday late afternoon. So we'll, we'll see what is happening by the time we publish this in a couple hours. But uh, stay tuned. It's, it's wild. Thanks. And I'll knock on wood. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.